You're listening to Dorset Wildlife Trust's Young Journalist Podcast in association with Participation People. Hello, I'm Jacob. And I'm Ruby. We're part of a team of young journalists inviting you to join us in our conversation with Dorset Wildlife Trust as we tackle the pressing issues surrounding our changing environment and what it could mean for us. This year, the charities celebrate their 60th year of protecting Dorset's diverse habitats and species, which are integral to our county's ecosystems. In this time, they've grown from a small group of volunteers to a community of 25,000 with five visit centres and 42 nature reserves. However, our wildlife still remains under threat. So we're asking you to take action so that our generation can continue to enjoy a healthy landscape. Because imagine a world without it. No bird song in the morning, no life in the sea, no natural colors, no bees, no crops, no humans. It is impossible to imagine. So let's take the easy steps to prevent it from becoming a reality. Firstly, we are handing over to Bethany, who interviewed Maria from Dorset Wildlife Trust about how we can better connect and help your local wildlife alongside your mental health. Hi, I'm Bethany, and I'm here to talk about how to connect to nature. In modern life, especially during lockdown, Many people have been disconnected to nature. We haven't evolved to be indoors, living with artificial lighting and without wildlife. This was found by Dr. William Baird, who through years of practicing medicine, realized we are designed to be connected to nature and be active due to our past as hunter-gatherers. He believes that prevention of illness through physical activity and time outdoors is the best medicine. Spending time outside or in gardens can also improve your mood, reduce stress and anger, and help you feel more relaxed and calm. Helping nature can also help you learn how to care for yourself. There are many ways to connect to nature in everyday life. The Dorset Wildlife Trust website has lots of information on how to connect to nature at home. This includes information on how to make bee hotels for solitary female bees to lay eggs in, and how bat boxes supports local bats and can help time outside in the evening be more bug free. The Wildlife Trust website also has a 30 days wild challenge. This will encourage you and give tips on how to connect to nature each day through random wellness acts. It will help inspire you to take up a habit that can help you connect with your local wildlife. Maria Clark from Dorset Wildlife Trust tried the 30 days wild last year and has picked up a new hobby, which she has done for 394 days, to learn more about wildlife and connect with nature. Here is her experience. So since the beginning of the first lockdown, I've been taking a picture and or video and posting it on my Facebook page um, every day. So I've been doing that since I started working from home. So yeah, every day, either a picture or a little video um, of my walks out with my dog. And did you find that doing that through lockdown helped your mental health? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things to support mental well-being is to connect 
to your surroundings and also to take notice. So before when I've been walking with the dog, you just kind of go on autopilot and just carry on walking. Whereas by knowing that I needed to take a video or a picture every day, it really made me think and notice about what was on around me. And doing it for so long, it meant I could see the different changes in the season. So some of the pictures I've posted is a little montage of um, spring, summer, autumn, winter. So yeah, it's been really helpful and kept me grounded. It's so easy to just take for granted uh, what's around you and you don't necessarily notice. But there's certainly been things that I'd never noticed before. I'd never really noticed that holly bushes have flowers. I've always noticed the berries when they come out, but really never noticed that they have beautiful little pink um, flowers. So it's really nice to actually see something different. And I don't have an environmental background, so there's been lots of things I'm not sure what it was. So I've come back and then looked it up um, and uh, or asked my friends on Facebook if they know what it is. Um, so, yeah, it's helped me learn things, which, again, is another great thing for supporting your mental well-being. So um, what sort of things did you learn about wildlife that you might not have known about before? different types of wasps, parasitic wasps that I'd never heard or heard about. Um, I found one of those in my greenhouse. Um, So that was exciting um, to see. I've certainly learned a few more moths uh, that I've discovered. And one of my friends is uh, is a big uh, moth fan. So she's been able to tell me what what they are. And also a number of wildflowers, more unusual ones that I haven't seen uh, that often. And I've been able to look up uh, those as well. So it's been really lovely to learn something new as well. And would you recommend this for other people to try? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think during the lockdown, I know some of my friends and some people have been shielding or haven't been able to get out as much as they would like to. And they've also um, said that they've really appreciated seeing uh, the pictures that I've posted. So it's given them something to look forward to, uh, as well as helping me to be mindful as well. So it's nice to be able to see what's around in your local area, really take notice, as I say, but also be able to share it with other people. So I would definitely recommend people give it a go. You don't necessarily have to um, do anything too detailed. I've been just doing it on my mobile phone and I say I've either taken a few pictures or I've taken a little video and yeah it's been really really helpful for me. Hi my name is Poppy Marshall and I'm part of the Dorset Wildlife Trust Young Journalists. Today I'm talking to you about how sound pollution is affecting our wildlife and humans. So you may be wondering what is sound pollution? Sound pollution is an unintentional byproduct of urbanisation, transport and industry. It is relevant almost everywhere in the planet and there are very few places where there is no sound pollution. Some may think that sound pollution is not dangerous, that it does not obstruct wildlife's health and well-being, but that is all false. Sound pollution is an invisible danger both on land and in our oceans. Sounds that reach 85 decibels or higher can damage humans' ears and every day things like lawnmowers, subway trains and music concerts exceed the recommended amount from the World Health Organisation. Sound pollution affects millions of people on a daily basis. However, we are not the only species suffering. All over the world animals are being affected. Many animals rely on sound for communication navigation, foraging, attracting mates, and to avoid predators. An example of animals being affected are birds. Birds rely on their sound to communicate, attract mates, defend territory, and warn for predators. However, 
due to increases in sound pollution. It is creating hardships and hindering their natural instincts. This forces them to adapt and alter their behaviour. In urban habitats, birds' diversity and abundance have been shown to decline as a result of chronic noise levels around cities and along roads. Species have demonstrated adjustments to their vocal behaviour in an attempt to adapt to the cacophony of human noise. Birds are having to adapt quickly, raising their lowest song notes in response to road noise. This is because most urban noise is of a low frequency. If some birds don't adapt quickly enough, they will become extinct in certain areas. Ultimately, noise pollution diminishes the quality of habitats because fewer birds opt to stay in noisy habitats, resulting in a further reduction in places for birds to live. Another species being affected by noise pollution are bats. Bats rely heavily on sound and hearing, and when noise pollution interferes with their ability to hear, their survival is at risk. Bats use echolocation to locate prey, so noise pollution sub subsequently means they can't do these things. It has been found that in noisy areas, bats are less active, resulting in declining numbers. These animals are not the only ones being affected. Marine mammals are also suffering. Marine mammals use sound for foraging and hunting, vocal behaviour and socialising, navigating, locating partners and exchanging warning calls. The louder background noise can mean that animals effectively have to shout, using more energy as a result. When using more energy, the demand for food increases and finding food in a noisy environment is already made difficult. This risks the animal's health and affects its ability to care for young. It also changes the behaviour of animals, for example, causing whales to exchange their diving patterns. It may also be a factor in strandings of marine mammals on beaches. I've had personal experience of seeing a dead dolphin stranded at Walborough Bay in Dorset. This, along with high levels of litter washed in on our beaches, shows that no part of, of the coastline is unaffected by man's activities. We have been aware for many years of the impact of pollution on humans, including the effects of noise pollution on health and well-being. However, we have only just become aware that animals are affected in very similar ways. Covid gave a temporary pause to this, showing encouraging signs of restoration for those animals affected. This has proven it is possible to slow down this ever-growing issue. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, particularly about the effects on Dorset's wildlife, go read my article where all these topics are explored in more depth. I recently did an interview with Peter Tinsley. Peter is the Marine Policy and Evidence Manager for the Wildlife Trust. I interviewed him specifically about sound pollution on our oceans. Here is what he had to say. Yeah, the, the really loud stuff can literally just kill, particularly things like marine mammals. And if it doesn't kill them, it can either scare them away from you know, where they want to feed um, or it can affect their hearing. And because they're so dependent on hearing, you know, they, they, that would have a real impact. And some, some of them, the military sonar has been linked to mass strandings of whales and dolphins around the world so again that, that seems to be something that affects something in the in the hearing or in the brain of the animals for the the more sort of general background noise that's something that's just gradually built up over the last 
probably 100 years or so. And it's something that has largely been ignored. I've seen a, a recent report that suggested that something like 90% of Europe's waters is affected by shipping noise. Oh, wow. At least 10% by continuous shipping noise. So if you, if you look at some of the areas in the middle of the channel, for example, there's constant shipping going up and down there. So there's there's never any quiet periods. So I've noticed that when people are talking about how pollution like plastic is affecting our oceans, do you know like why they never really speak about sound pollution? Because it's never really brought up as a factor. No, you're right. It's a people people just ignore it. Um, mm. And it's one of those things that has kind of just grown up gradually over time. We're not really exposed to it ourselves because we're never going to be in this sort of dangerous situations where you're likely to be harmed by it. And otherwise, not many people, divers perhaps, would be a little bit more aware of it because you know, the sound of a boat going overhead is, is quite alarming. But otherwise, it's, it's largely invisible to people. You can kind of liken it a bit to the light pollution and in the same way, and it, people generally don't notice it until you go somewhere really dark. There is a, a move to champion quiet areas of the sea in the same way you, you champion dark sky areas. But yeah. to do that, you need to know where the noise is and, and where the quiet places are. Hello, I'm Charlie. I'm currently a year 10 student and I've been working on writing an article for the Dorset Wildlife Trust all about the reality of Dorset's marine life. 71% of the Earth's total surface area consists of oceans. As time continues, the marine environment faces many more significant threats, the most distinguished danger being plastic pollution. With Dorset's area of sea roughly equivalent to the same area of land as the county, plastic pollution is a vast challenge along with other factors. But what exactly do we mean by plastic pollution in Dorset? Plastic pollution can be defined as the accumulation of any type of plastic item negatively affecting the environment. Currently being tackled is the washing up of nurdles throughout the British coastline, yet they often go unnoticed due to their minuscule pellet-like appearance. When melted down, these nurdles are what typically make up the manufacturing of coffee cups, plastic bags and other common items such as food packaging. In 2008, the Dorset Wildlife Trust initiated a project to measure the amount of plastic being washed up along Kimmeridge Beach, leading to the development of the Nerdolometer. Shockingly, in less than a few years, the plastic pieces totaled 350,000. Furthermore, the Great Nerdle Hunt concluded in 2017 that 73% of all inspected beaches had nurdles somewhere on them, with a singular beach situated in Cornwall, having over 127,000 pellets gathered. Nurdles are definitely distressing, disastrous and damaging for not only the marine environment, as any bird or pet coming across these could potentially ingest and retain the pellets, compromising gut health and digestive functions. Mass discoveries of microplastics and other not yet broken down plastic items are found floating in water or washed up on shores every day. A hefty concern may be the increase in mermaid tears. Nearly over 100 million fish are now killed annually by microplastics nicknamed mermaid tears due to their inability 
to digest the sharp debris. This was previously thought to be a less severe issue with the majority of these mermaid tears made of glass, forming what many people today recognize as the smooth, pretty clumps of sea glass along the shore. Now, the rise of plastic bottles has flipped this upside down. According to a 2017 study by Greenpeace, 250 million microplastics were sourced all across UK beaches within a weekend, indubitably some of these being mermaid tears. A key issue being tackled currently is Dorset boat management and eco-friendly mooring points. Surprisingly, anchors can inflict great damage by dragging and scouring across the seabed. This is a huge problem as according to local Dorset diver Jojo from the Dorset Diving Services Company, they damage the delicate habitats, seagrass beds. These beds are home to endangered species of seahorses, pipefish and are nursing grounds for young fish and rays. Therefore, eco-friendly mooring fittings are in the planning where boats can tie up to floating buoys rather than lowering their anchors. According to Southampton University, 10 are being fitted this year in Studland. Diving expert Jojo states how trawling is a big issue, especially in Lime Bay. It wipes out so much marine life in one go and its after effects are devastating. Jojo explained how during drift diving, it's always noticeable when an area has been trawled, whether it be recent or not, as it's always left barren. I've seen more and more littering fishing lines tangled up under both Swanage and Boscombe Pier. This is why we do our dive against debris dives at these sites. Furthermore, Human disturbance affects marine life massively. A noteworthy example of this being Danny the dolphin, a common dolphin which had taken up residence around the Portland area. It was a very friendly and curious dolphin and people got up too close to him. He became habitualized to the human activity, which in turn, some believe indirectly killed him as he was struck by a boat. This could mean that because the dolphin was expecting friendly interaction, he got in too close a proximity to the boat. Devastatingly, this is not an unusual occurrence among dolphins, seals and other marine animals when they become too used to human activity. Fortunately, surveys are being carried out by divers showing how much damage anchors are causing in terms of dragging and tearing up seagrass, helping to contribute to an application being applied in order to stop boats lowering their anchors as of the 31st of May, 2019 creating a marine conservation zone stretching from Shell Bay to Old Harry Rocks. So you may be wondering, how can I best connect to nature? To answer this question, we hand over to Gina for some top tips. How has urbanisation affected nature? The increasing amount of people living in cities has destroyed many habitats and countryside on the outside of cities, which has forced nature into smaller spaces. This has also increased competition in ecosystems and also building on greenfield sites as a result of lack of housing and an increasing overpopulation. How can people connect to nature in towns and cities? There are lots of small things that people can do in order to get more connected to nature. Just putting out bird food and noticing the birds while you're out on a walk can be very mindful and growing plants on your windowsill balcony or garden. You can also be selective of the plants that you use, for example using plants that are more bee friendly and going for a walk to your local park and having a picnic. 
or volunteering at a local allotment or a nature reserve or a park. What are the physical benefits of being connected to nature? Being connected to nature promotes being more active by going on walks and walking barefoot, for example touching soil, helps regulate the nervous system and strengthen immunity. Sports outside, as well as being socially connected, also connect you physically. What are the mental benefits of being connected to nature? Being connected to nature promotes mindfulness and gratitude and also helps reduce symptoms of depression. Natural light from the sun improves quality of sleep and being out in nature, there are many forms of social connection that can take place, for example, outside sports like walking, archery and water sports. There is also forest bathing, which originated from Japan in the 1980s, which involves being connected to forests. Now it's time to hear from the CEO himself, Brian. Jacob and I interviewed him to find out more about his background, the current work of the DWT and the Trust's future. What attracted you first to DWT or Dozer Wildlife Trust? But my background, um, it was in the army, actually. And the connection isn't as, uh, isn't as, as, as odd as you might think, because, uh, you know, being in the army, you spend a lot of time outdoors. You know, and a lot of time doing things in the field, and it's and developing that interest in the in the kind of countryside environment around you leads to, or led me in my case, certainly led to an interest in the wildlife around me. And when I when I left the army, eventually, um, I thought, well, what, what do I want to do now? So I took the opportunity as a mature student to go back to university and get a, an environmental degree. I was very fortunate, in fact, 23, 24 years ago, to get an interview with Dorset Wildlife Trust for a job on the day of my last exam. I had an interview at nine o'clock in the morning and headed off, did my final exam at two o'clock in the afternoon for three hours. And then I got back home and got a phone call offering me the job. So it was a, it was a, it was a good day. Awareness of opportunities where I grew up and the school I went to were fairly limited. So I didn't perceive it as a career opportunity at the time. So came back to it later and uh, yeah, haven't looked back. Why should people support Dorset Wildlife Trust? Dorset Wildlife Trust, it, to me, is an organisation that enables people that are thinking thinking globally to really take action locally. Uh, you know, our localism is our niche and we're connected with what people cover on their everyday lives, I think. What is something that you've done that you are most proud of? That's, that's, Not, that's a great, great yeah. question, actually. I think all through my life, I've kind of wanted to ha- look back and have a body of work. I think, yeah, I can say I've made a difference there. And I think my previous job and this one now has given me the opportunity to to take a lead on developing some really interesting, beneficial projects and beneficial opportunities. I've been involved in t- probably three or four really good things. Yeah. Setting up the, the Chesil Beach Centre was, was one that I've been involved in. You know, that I was the project lead on that. And also a couple of years ago, we had a really great opportunity to acquire and secure for conservation some really big chunks of land around Paul and Bournemouth in what we call, through what we call the Great Heath Project. And um, that meant raising, securing about five million pounds altogether to enable us to buy nearly 1,500 acres of land. And I think in terms of the single project that's made the most difference, that's probably the one. I'm also, yeah, I'm also pleased that I can look back on a suite of varied projects and varied initiatives that have made, I think, a, a difference to wildlife and a difference to people. Just on that, what are you most looking forward to in the charity's future? 
We have new challenges now. They're not entirely new, but they've, the focus of them has changed over recent years. And I think it's become very apparent to many that we really do need to focus on climate change. Along with that, environmental degradation, because climate change is one challenge that we face, of course, and it's probably the biggest challenge mankind has ever faced. Alongside that, we've got massive environmental degradation happening through pollution, through inappropriate development in places, um, and over recent years, changes in agriculture. And this combination of climate change and environmental degradation is driving the next, the other big crisis, which is the ecological crisis. We're seeing species abundance decline substantially. We're seeing more and more species at threat of extinction locally and, and globally. Now, Dorset Wildlife is really focusing its efforts on how we can address those two big crises, climate change and environmental degradation, and the ecological crisis, how we can do that locally, and how we can reconnect people with nature to enable them to be part of that solution. Why is it important for younger people to get involved, like ourselves, that will one day, we might be where you are, you know, someone's going to be where you are. Why is it important for people of our age to get involved now? A, you know, young people inherit the future, of course. And one of my driving forces is that in, in you know, thinking of Dorset, is that we, we are able to hand over a Dorset that's at least as diverse, interesting and, and a great place to live as the one we inherited. And I think that's, what, that's our duty. My grandfather used to tell me that when he went fishing in Swanage Bay, it was full of fish and he used to be able to go down there and catch his dinner every night if he wanted to. My dad tells me that you know, it wasn't quite as good as that, but, and then I experienced it not quite as good as that. So that baseline of what was good, you know, so I look back when I was a kid and think, oh, fishing was great in Swanage, now it's rubbish. You know, and each subsequent generation does that. So their baseline is what they perceive. And that's the same with the countryside and wildlife. You know, we, the, the changes are so incrementally slow in many cases that we don't necessarily perceive them on a daily basis. So I think aspiring to something beyond that that we've experienced ourselves is really important. And I think that is our great challenge going forward is to make space for wildlife. Because space for wildlife means wildlife's got the opportunity or nature has the opportunity to be the solution to climate change by capturing carbon, by storing carbon as importantly but also nature can help with things like water quality you know by, by reducing by capturing nitrates that are flowing in from 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 farming and things like that into into our water systems so nature has the answer if we give it the chance what's your plan going forward with things like social media we, we do use social media we've got a reasonable number of followers on, on most of the platforms not 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 loads you know compared to Justin Bieber or something, you know, I think we're, we're, we're fairly light. I think it shows that we have to present ourselves in a way that attracts people and engages them by making it relevant to people. I think making, making ourselves relevant to people's everyday lives. And that, what I do think is our, our kind of natural audience at the moment for, for nature conservation generally is probably a slightly older audience, let's say. I hope as more young people are develop an interest in the natural environment, in nature, and in, in, in actually being part of that solution to our environmental problems, they've grown up with social media. So I think social media will become more important as a communications medium for the environment sector as we go forward. As it's ageing, people that don't use social media so much perhaps uh, you know, are replaced by younger people that have grown up using social media. So we need, we need to make sure we remain relevant. It makes sharing ideas with people, with like-minded people, much easier than perhaps it 
you know, mm-hmm. when I was at school, there was obviously no such thing as social media. Communications took a long time. Okay, thank you very much for your time. Um, it was great to talk to you. And you, well, best of luck. And I uh, look forward to seeing some of your, your uh, outputs. Thank you for your time and listening to us. We hope you've learned as much from this as we have on our journey. Be sure to follow our Instagram at DWT Young Journalists to share how you have been inspired from our work. Now we're handing it over to you. What can you do to ensure a healthier, brighter and wilder future? The Young Journalists are a group of young people from across Dorset trained in journalism skills and informed about environmental issues. For more information and to follow their journey, please visit www.dorsetwildlifetrust.org.uk Follow Participation People at ParticipationPP on Twitter and follow at DWT Young Journalists on Instagram. The Young Journalist Programme is brought to you by Dorset Wildlife Trust in association with Participation People.